This episode contains potentially disturbing content. Please proceed with caution. Previously on Gooned. Just straight up fake ratios. So they would straight up fake ratios. They would have clinical therapists or sometimes even the nurses would come in and literally act as staff just for the two hours that the state was there. There's a lot of like really shady dealings and the people who are figureheads in the system like know how to work the system. They're scared of regulation. So this is not an accrediting body. The programs pay to be a part of it. They get a distinction for the amount of data they share about their patients. And basically it's just everybody patting each other on the back. Welcome back to Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. In today's episode, we'll be talking about NATSAP, a trade organization representing TTI programs, affiliates, directors, and administrators. With the DLC and being active, I would ask that people, if you have questions about this, to call me or um, get a hold of, you know, call myself, call the home office. Let's not email. Uh, that is something that will be discoverable if this, things go to court. In October 2020, the Disability Law Center of Utah announced the launch of an investigation into the state's troubled teen industry facilities. The DLC's federal designation as a protection and advocacy organization allows them access to public and non-public portions of jails, congregate care facilities, and the like, including those considered part of the TTI in the event of abuse allegations. In other words, if your facility is under DLC investigation and you're hiding something, you should probably be scared. Please find out if you have had an increase in record requests um, over the last two, three weeks. Following the announcement, the director of the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs, also known as NATSAP, held a meeting with NATSAP's member programs. I want you to really pay attention. It is a sign that the Disability Law Center or Disability Rights, whatever, uh, is actively looking at your program. Be very polite, uh, but decline to let them add to any non-public portions of your program until the attorney has had a chance to review the basis for their request. The authority of the DLC struck fear into NATSAP and the programs that are a part of it. NATSAP member programs warned each other that current and former students were requesting their records. To be clear, these are records that facilities are legally required to provide to students and to which students have full rights. So we have had a program outside of Utah who had uh, records requests of about 12 um, that former students come through and basically a 24, 48-hour period. Um, and they were all asking for the same records, the same kind of language. Now that's either a sign of a class action lawsuit or it's a sign that the DLC is involved. Fun fact, the DLC can also help to formulate a class action lawsuit. Um, and then we were just made aware of another program in a different state, so three states now, where they have had a large increase in records requests uh, over a very short time period, as well as using the same language. Let's start with a simple question. What is NATSAP? The National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs is a trade organization whose membership includes the majority of operational TTI programs. 
They do not accredit, oversee, regulate, or specifically recommend any programs, but serve as a representative of the industry in legal proceedings and in lobbying, and as a legitimizer of its member programs. NATSAP member programs receive a seal along with their membership that is often lauded by educational consultants and referral services and looked to by parents as a legitimizer of a program. Even if consultants or parents don't know that membership means nothing about a program's quality or efficacy, the NATSAP seal is nonetheless an official-looking designation that ties a program to an official-sounding organization. A center can be like, oh, I'm NATSAP certified. They can claim that they're like more legitimate through that, when in reality, it's like all of the treatment facilities coming together. Programs become NATSAP members by paying a monthly fee of anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000, depending on the state. Individuals, like educational consultants and referral services, can also be members of NATSAP by paying a monthly fee, and are also not audited, nor are they held to any enforceable standard in order to retain membership. Jamie is a survivor and industry researcher who we most recently heard from in Episode 6. They've become intimately acquainted with NATSAP through their own experiences, both in their research and through the college they attended, which we'll get into later. There's so many conflicts of interest if they're the ones regulating themselves. When you're having like a self-regulating body, something that I think is so morally corrupt and unethical, it's just impossible for good things to come out of it. The entire thing very clearly seems like it's about protecting these facilities and keeping them from getting a shutdown. Per NATSAP's official website, the trade organization is, quote, an advocate and resource for innovative organizations which devote themselves to society's need for the effective care and education of struggling young people and their families. Their members include, quote, therapeutic schools, residential treatment programs, wilderness programs, outdoor therapeutic programs, young adult programs, and home-based residential programs working with struggling teens and troubled adolescents, end quote. Throughout their website, there is bolded red text stating that NATSAP does not audit, accredit, or otherwise regulate its member programs. And that quote about providing the highest quality of care? Well, even facilities with frequent and egregious Department of Human Services violations confirmed allegations of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, and on some occasions, deaths, have had no issue retaining their NATSAP certification. Maple Lake Academy, where 14-year-old Sophia Soto died due to alleged medical neglect in 2022, remains a NATSAP member to this day. The Wadiko School, where 18-year-old Tommy Nickerson died by suicide in 2017, is still a NATSAP member. Diamond Ranch Academy, where 16-year-old Matthew Lobach died by suicide in 2013, was not denied its status as a member program until 2022, when a 17-year-old student named Taylor Goodrich died due to untreated sepsis at the academy, sparking public outrage. If you pick at random from NATSAP's directory of member programs, you can almost always find records of abuse, regulation violations, or both for that same school. Many of those records were made publicly available by the survivor advocacy organization Unsilenced which has published a searchable database of complaints and violations for hundreds of TTI facilities across the country. Caroline Cole, a co-founder of Unsilenced, is herself a survivor of two and a half years at a lockdown facility. She co-hosts the podcast Trapped in Treatment, serves as special advisor to the International Coalition Against Restraint and Seclusion, and co-authored pending federal legislation to bring transparency to the industry. 
I want to be clear, NatSAP's role was never to regulate the industry. And they don't even, like NatSAP's role is not to even say that they have certain standards. They are a special interest group. And that's all that they're for, right? They are a group to support the interests of their members. Caroline knows NatSAP all too well. She has witnessed NatSAP's power in the legislative landscape and has seen parents take the NatSAP seal as one of legitimacy. I, I think sometimes people get confused because NatSAP has a seal. They think that NatSAP has some role in either establishing standards or overseeing their members. No, you literally, it's just a, you know, pay for play, right? You pay to be a part of their membership and you're in and that's it. It doesn't mean anything about the quality of care, but I I do think for parents, it's very dangerous. You know, if they're looking at a facility website and it says NATSAP, it looks official. It looks like they belong to something. It looks like it means that they have standards or something. Caroline is active in the legislative space, co-authoring bills and speaking with people from within and outside of the industry. The leaked call at the beginning of this episode featured the voice of NATSAP director Megan Stokes, who Caroline is very familiar with. I actually spoke on a panel one time. It was a juvenile justice panel in South Florida, and NATSAP were also on that panel. They had Megan Stokes come and speak on NATSAP's behalf. And and it was actually kind of nice. I really enjoyed being able to, you know, they just tend to say things that kind of exposes really what's happening. When I began looking into NATSAP, I quickly noticed that same phenomenon. This organization cannot seem to help making itself look bad. Of course, that phone call was not intended to be heard by the public. But even in public statements, it seems that the organization sticks its own foot in its mouth over and over again. Ms. Jan Moss is the executive director of the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs, created in January of 1999. Jan Moss founded NATSAP in 1999, along with John Redden, Len Bucolato, and John Santa. Moss stepped down as NATSAP's executive director in 2008, in no small part due to the fallout from a 2007 congressional hearing on child abuse in teen residential programs. She came before the United States Government Accountability Office to defend NATSAP in the wake of the GAO's study of four cases of death and four cases of severe physical abuse in NATSAP facilities, as well as investigation into its deceptive marketing tactics. I am Jan Moss. To those of you who have spoken today of your devastating losses, I express my condolences, respect, and utmost deference. I have not suffered the loss of a child. I am here as the executive director of NATSAP. The findings of the GAO's investigations were gut-wrenching, detailing cases of abuse, neglect, trauma, and the deaths of children and young teenagers at the hands of NATSAP member programs. Faced with these grisly details, Moss fumbled through excuses and non-answers about NATSAP's record-keeping and role in the industry. Moss, it's my understanding that the three of the facilities just mentioned uh, are uh, NATSAP members. Is that correct? Yes. Open. Do you have any idea how many deaths have come from those programs or out of those 16,000 youth? Sir, I don't recall... Immediately. Uh, our, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have that information at my hand right now. As she's grilled by Chairman George Miller and various state senators on the cases in question, 
Natsap's questionable ethics and its lack of purpose, Moss speaks blankly, seemingly unaware of the gravity and disturbing nature of what she says. I'm trying to figure out what the ethical violation is. Kids dying and being abused in a rather wholesale fashion. And you say that uh, somebody had something wrong on their website and that violated the ethical standards. I just wonder where abuse of children falls in those ethical standards. So we we look to the, the third-party investigators to, to advise us as to what the actions were taken, what that their findings were. So essentially, you're an organization where these people self-certify that they will adhere to the principles of your... Uh, uh, of your best practices, which are based on 12 ethical principles which were formulated using the standards of the Joint Commission. So it's not like they're adhering to the Joint Commission. They're self-certifying that they'll adhere to 12 ethical principles that were formulated with those standards in mind. Uh, yes. As the hearing wears on, the committee becomes more and more frustrated as it tries to understand how and why NATSAP could be so negligent with regards to overseeing its members. So if they did not pay their, their membership dues, they are, their membership is... So canceled. it's all about their membership dues? Uh, no, sir, it is not. It is not. Well, I'm trying to figure out what else it's about because you can't find any evidence of abuse. You don't know the financial situations. I'm just trying to figure out what your association is about. If, we, if there is findings of wrongdoing, sir, or criminal action taken, or, or ethical violations... By outside, by outside organizations. Yes, sir, we do not do... You, the, don't, you don't do your own investigations. We do not do our own investigations, You sir. don't do your own uh, looking at, at, at the quality of these organizations? No, sir, we do essentially not. Self-certified? We, they, are, they, are, they are not certified by our organization. We are not an accrediting agency. We're not a licensing What agency. the hell do you do? This hearing, of course, is more than 15 years old, but it's still a damning example of NATSAP's lack of self-awareness and their skill at accidentally exposing themselves. You don't get very far in training before you tell people how dangerous and fatal dehydration can be, especially if you have a program that's designed to be in the desert. I mean, I don't get the ethical standards here or the professional standards of the training where people would not recognize and prevent, in fact, prevent, uh, the dangers and the fatalities related to dehydration. I mean, this is like CARE 101. So this is the first we have heard of the circumstances of these deaths. We will take these back to the board and we will review them in, in depth. Mr. McKean said there's, there's a lot of room here for, for something uh, in terms of, of, of uh, oversight. Eventually, they ask Moss about NATSAP's research or what NATSAP calls its research. What do your members gain by joining NATSAP? Uh, they gain the, the journal. They gain uh, access to others in this profession. They gain uh, insight into uh, the newest clinical studies. Uh, there are many clinicians in our organizations that present at our conferences. Um, they. Uh, it's, it's basically an education type of uh, benefit with, with this. With a new uh, research initiative, they will gain from that. They will be able to... No, uh, what they will. What have they? How, how many conferences do you have a year? We have one now. The research initiative that she's mentioning would become NATSAP's research-designated program initiative, introduced in its current form at a 2016 NATSAP conference. 
NatSAP programs that submit demographic information and questionnaire responses, or their own broadly defined quote-unquote research to the NatSAP database, are given a special page on the NatSAP website and in the directory, and can also include the term research-designated program in their marketing. NatSAP puts out quote-unquote research but I'm a researcher and I look at it and they won't like look at certain major issues. There's a lot of weaponized incompetence coming from the researchers just leaving things out or not recognizing very obvious connections between different harmful things. The studies produced by NatSAP programs and published in NatSAP's own research journal are used by the programs that produce them and by NatSAP as a whole to justify the efficacy of the TTI. There's a lot of things where people will cite those as sources saying like, oh, everything is fine because look at this piece of research. When the piece of research is like, again, in my opinion, as a researcher myself, incredibly corrupt and done so poorly and the methodology is awful. When it comes to studies that quote unquote show something good about treatment, (laughs) like... All I have to do is look at the methodology and like I there's so much to be disproven about everything they're doing. Advocates, activists, mental health professionals, survivors and researchers agree that there is no credible evidence to support the idea that long term congregate care is beneficial to children in crisis. Instead, all reputable research consistently points to short term outpatient community based intervention as the best form of support. But that has not stopped NATSAP member programs from conducting and publishing studies that purport to demonstrate the effectiveness of their programs. These studies are so fundamentally flawed on the basis of their very methodology that to criticize their findings would be to legitimize them as actual scientific literature, which they are not. Now, I'm a journalist, and I'm an English major, and I haven't taken a science class since my sophomore year of college. Even absent any semblance of a STEM background— When I read through the studies produced by NATSAP programs, I was flabbergasted that they could even be approved to be conducted, let alone published. But just to be sure, I consulted an Alliant International University neuropsychologist to help cull through some of the jargon. We didn't record the interview because she told me that, frankly, she didn't even know where to begin. The study was so flawed that this experienced neuropsychologist didn't even know how to criticize its findings, because the methodology upon which it was based was just... it was just wrong. And not only were the methods flawed, but they were also in flagrant violation of the requirements of their respective institutional review boards, not to mention the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' federal policy for the protection of human subjects. The very study subjects they used were minors submitting self-reported data under duress. The methodology of therapy they claimed to use was the level system, which we covered in Episode 3, and which has no basis in a therapeutic modality. They failed to differentiate treatment models based on diagnoses. The people administering the quote-unquote therapy to be quote-unquote analyzed change at unspecified intervals throughout the study, both in number and identity. This specific study literally cites flashcards as the manner in which those conducting it were trained. It's a mess. These studies, which are the only ones the TTI has to point to as demonstrations of the efficacy of their models, prove nothing and use child abuse as a methodology to do it. So how are they getting approval to be conducted? And how are they getting published? 
There is a researcher for NATSAP named Michael Gass, who has done like a lot of work that's just really bad, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of other people. I initially connected with Jamie after reading their research on the effects of the TTI on survivors, which was the first of its kind. I found Jamie's research through the University of New Hampshire, where they had published their study as an undergraduate. I found out that Michael Gass was in part responsible for the regulations that were in place at the time that I was in wilderness, the regulations that allowed for my abuse. And he's done a lot of research that's, to me, just like blatantly awful, a lot of questionable methods and ethics. And he works at the University of New Hampshire, which is where I got my degree. Michael Gass is a professor in the Outdoor Education Program in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of New Hampshire and one of the founders of the Brown Center, which develops curricula for wilderness programs. Michael Gass happens to serve as the director of the NATSAP Research Database Network. And Michael Gass is also the editor of NATSAP's Journal of Therapeutic Schools and Programs. And Michael Gass is also the author or co-author of countless studies with titles like The Effectiveness of Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare with Struggling Adolescents. Jamie says they wouldn't have even applied to UNH if they had known about Gass's and NATSAP's ties to the university. Nonetheless, when Jamie discovered these ties, they called him out. And when I brought that to the University of New Hampshire and I said he's been involved with really harmful research, all they did was like say something to him and then he was like i have good intentions and they dropped the entire thing and there was a guy who was helping me with that and he like suddenly stepped down and i have no idea what was like going on with any of this but like at the moment michael gas is still working for university of new hampshire still getting really questionable projects approved by unh's institutional review board and also educating people on these facilities in a way that is not accurate to the actual lived experiences of a lot of survivors and is really harmful when you're taking people who don't totally know about something and then treating this guy as the expert on it and kind of bringing this new generation in who has these really harmful ideas about how these things work. That are just not accurate to what I and my friends and my research participants have actually experienced. It became clear to Jamie that gas was somewhat untouchable. Some other survivors I interviewed were aware of him too, either specifically or as yet another vague figurehead in the machine. Michael Gass, who kind of started that, the doctor from uh, University of New Hampshire, he kind of built this network of programs that all report to each other. Basically, it's just everybody patting each other on the back. Dr. Gass manages the NATSAP database, which is housed at UNH, and is responsible for the establishment of the research-designated program that he is teaching both college students and practitioners, as well as continuing to develop and push wilderness therapy programs, is one troubling example of NATSAP's reach. It's interesting because I, um, you know, when I first started residential treatment, it was about 20 years ago. And it was really interesting because we didn't have a lot of things. We didn't have, like, aftercare. Just didn't exist. This research is not only used for intra-industry backpatting, but to legitimize the TTI to the public. I think we've done a better job collecting outcomes and taking evidence-based practice. This is a director at a residential treatment center in Utah. 
He's presenting an ostensible research study that he conducted at that facility to a room full of other NATSAP member program administrators. And to me. Because, you know, before it was like, parents would be like, well, tell me it doesn't work. Be like, well, yeah, the last three have done really good, you know? But I'm like, that's so dumb, right? Like, the fact that we feel okay about saying that's so dumb. And so I feel less like a uh, salesman. I had weaseled my way into one of NATSAP's annual regional conferences in Idaho, under the pretense that I was a PhD student in clinical psychology looking to get into the field of residential treatment. After months of listening to survivors, staff, and parent testimony, speaking to activists and advocates, and diving deep into the troubled teen industry, I realized that I was missing an important piece of information. The perspective of those at the top. Those who were not only cogs in the machine, but who constructed and operated the machine. I wanted to see inside the culture of program directors and higher-ups. I wondered what they said amongst themselves, how they talked to each other about their industry, how they talked to themselves about their industry, and what bubble they could possibly have constructed that kept them working in that industry for decades with a clear conscience. So I begrudgingly forked over 250 of my hard-earned dollars to the NATSAP event staff and boarded a flight to Idaho. I'm actually a student. Um, I'm a grad student at USC, um, and I want to go into some field of residential care, and our program just kind of has this blind spot. NATSAP's 2023 Rocky Mountain Regional Conference was a gathering of directors and employees from Idaho TTI programs. There were also representatives from NATSAP's sponsors, like database management companies, note-taking software, and an insurance claim appeal service, ironically called Denial Management Incorporated. The opening reception saw me seated at the end of a table full of program directors and sponsor representatives. I shifted uncomfortably in my seat, pushing my finger sandwiches back and forth on a paper plate, until an older woman stared down the table and pointed at me. You, she said. What's your thing? I recited my cover story. We made small talk about the weather, about Idaho, about the number of different ways to cook a potato. I showed that I knew enough about the industry, but not too much. I was surprised to find that even as my questions got more pointed, nobody hesitated to answer them, nor did they seem to find their answers as disconcerting as I did. I was the only one sweating through my suit, until someone asked, what about the, um, the transport? You know about those? The discomfort was palpable. I cocked my head and said, no, what's that? Before the latter half of the word kidnapping could escape his lips, someone changed the subject. This was the only time over the next two days that the veil was almost lifted, the only moment of acknowledgement that what they're doing might be wrong. After the opening reception, I sat through speaker after speaker, whose talks were a barrage of missed irony, cognitive dissonance, and disturbing viewpoints from people working with vulnerable youth. I'm a parent. I have four kids, and I am just so good at conditioning my kids to do things in a way that is convenient for me. One talk discussed the benefits of assertive communication, encouraging therapists to assert themselves to colleagues, parents, and students. And, for some reason I still can't understand, discussed why it's okay for therapists not to explain their methods or why their methods may be ineffective. Super, super effective. Getting people to feel just 
twinge of guilt or shame or questioning themselves in order to do things in a way that's more convenient for us, that has an outcome that we like better. We have the right not to justify ourselves to other people. What's your experience when you choose not to take on the responsibility for some of these things? You're a bad therapist. For sure. And that may be true, but <laughs> I may be a bad therapist, but I can decide that I'm not responsible for finding solutions to your problems. Now, not responsible for finding solutions to other people's problems? You're a therapist. That's literally your job, I thought. The speaker, who's a program director, asked the audience, do you have any criticisms for my talk? The room fell silent. Anything else? Any other criticisms so far? Man, we, we do this to our kids all the time. It's easy, it's easy for us, right, to levy a criticism. The next talk discussed the benefits of music, recreational, and equine therapy, and eventually had the audience drawing farm animals with their non-dominant hands for some therapeutic reason that was never quite made clear. Then we stood back-to-back with the person sitting to our left and threw ping-pong balls over our shoulders, another therapeutic technique that was never quite explained. Okay, one, two, over your left shoulder. Oh, close. Then, a music therapist played a song that a student had written while inside their facility. So, this is one song that she wrote. And I'll put the lyrics up. The lyrics came up on the screen, and a soft voice began playing from the speakers. I sat in disbelief as the song played. The students singing had written lyrics about feeling trapped, having no place to call home. Loneliness. Being held somewhere with no escape. Missing a life once led. As the song faded out, I wondered if this would be the first time in the past two days that maybe, just maybe, some acknowledgement would be made of the pain that this girl was expressing. So, what, what emotions or, like, topics do you gather just from, like, the short few stanzas there? But, of course, it wasn't. Yeah, and so, I love, like, I should be happy I have a whole new life to live. So there's, like, a little tornness there, but there is that glimmer of hope there. I started to feel sick where I heard a gut-wrenching song with a clear indictment of the trauma of this program, everyone else in the room heard something completely different. As I walked through the hallways between presentations, I heard open discussion of the details of specific students' treatment plans, complete with full names and offhand statements about how, quote, screwed up they supposedly were. Coming off months of hearing survivor stories, not only of the time spent in the TTI, but also of the years of trauma experienced afterwards, coming off months of discussing pending legislation and the moves being made to take down the industry, months of reading news story after news story exposing yet another program for abuse or poor conditions or death, I had entered the belly of the beast and found your average trade show. 
It wasn't that they weren't discussing the things that they do to kids. No, people were having full, open conversations about their students' treatment details. It was the disconnect. Except for the one time at the opening reception when a sponsor representative had mentioned kidnapping, there was never discomfort, never guilt, never acknowledgement. Not of regulation that was currently actively threatening the industry. Not of abuse, nor of media attention. Not of the leaked calls or of the highly publicized death, just months before, of a 17-year-old student at a NATSAP member program. I expected at a conference for the preeminent organization in this industry at least some acknowledgement of the cultural milieu. At the very least, some anti-regulation comments or scoffing at recent media attention. But it was like that never even entered their consciousness. At no point did anybody else seem to feel like there was an elephant in the room. I walked into the conference nervous that my questions would be too prying or that my loyalties would be revealed. But presentation after presentation, conversation after conversation, Natsap explicitly addressed parts of the industry that I expected them to want to keep hidden and with no recognition. If I came to this conference with no outside knowledge, I would be leaving three days later with no awareness of what lay beneath the surface. I could truly have remained in that bubble. And I understood how so many of these people who have worked in the industry for decades are so convinced of their belief in the efficacy and morality of the troubled teen industry. There's no inkling of like, okay, let me sit down and reevaluate. And that was something I did at the, at the end of the first day. I was like, let me take my own advice and like sit down and in good faith, do what I think these people should do, which is sit down and consider like the other side. When I got back, Jamie and I had a debrief about the conference. And I was like, I'm looking at, you know, this enormous Google Drive of like megabytes upon megabytes of why this isn't the case. And it was like, I just don't think anyone there is willing to even consider that as a possibility. I think it seems too dangerous because it's like, well, this person's story is true. That means this person's story is true. And it just snowballs into like, oh, shoot. And so the lack of engagement with any of that is kind of this protective measure over this cliff of, oh my God, like, what am I doing? There's a lot of like willful ignorance that I see and like just digging themselves deeper into a hole because they've already put so much time and energy into it and made so much money. They cannot face the truth because it's so deeply awful what we've all gone through at these places. It was sunk costs, we agreed, that kept so many of these people working in the troubled teen industry. Realizing that a career path you've invested time, effort, and money into is in fact not the path you want to take is already hard. But to sit yourself down and come face to face with the fact that for years or decades, you have been complicit in the abuse and traumatization of dozens, hundreds, thousands of children, that is nearly impossible. So if you surround yourself with only the few positive stories that do exist, with a trade organization full of yes-men producing data that, as long as you don't look too closely, tells you you're doing something good, if you shut yourself into that bubble, you never have to confront it. And with the belief that they have the key to healing troubled teens and the knowledge that they can make money doing it, the TTI reaches beyond individual parents and private placement and into the juvenile justice and family court systems. Next week on Gund, 
we will look at additional ways that teens are put into the TTI and how certain states have made it especially easy for facilities to open, operate, and take in youth sent away by the courts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. To see the notes and materials from the NATSAP conference and read the study that was presented, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gund wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. This episode is dedicated to Dr. Nancy Underwood. Thank you for lending your expertise to this episode and to the field of neuropsychology. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.